I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending June 28th. This week, the French Research Institute, Letty, held a conference on artificial intelligence at the edge. What does putting AI on the edge of the network mean, and what's the advantage? EE Times editors were in Grenoble and filed the report. A few weeks ago, PCI introduced a new ultra-fast networking specification that will make data centers perform even better, and that will make the internet faster and more capable. A few days ago, PCI unexpectedly doubled the speed again with yet another spec. EE Times editors were at the annual Sensors Expo, which has become an important conference for the Internet of Things. We'll have a report. Also, the prevailing wisdom is that self-driving vehicles will be safer than human drivers. But what if there's a third option? One that's just as safe as self-driving cars are supposed to be. We'll hear about that in a moment. Data centers and other computing clusters simply can't go fast enough. In the last few weeks, the PCI Special Interest Group introduced not one but two generations of the PCI spec. PCI will accelerate the data centers that are now central to the modern internet, but adopting the new specs will force some significant changes in how data centers get configured. Here's Rick Merritt on the new spec and what it means. The PCI Special Interest Group surprised many of us at their annual event last week when they announced plans for Gen 6, a 64 gigatransfer per second version of PCI Express. They had just finished last month their Gen 5 at 32 gigatransfers per second, so doubling the interconnect speed within two years is really pretty impressive. Now, they're really just leveraging the PAM4 technology with forward error correction that's, that's been sorted out and developed uh, for high-end certies. But nevertheless, to implement that in a kind of a mainstream specification that has to go into high-volume servers and even PCs is going to be quite a challenge, and I'm sure it's going to take them the whole two years. One of the interesting aspects here is that we understand from talking to people on the show floor there that copper really still has a long life ahead of it. There's uh, three specs in the optical interconnect forum. There's an IEEE backplane spec uh, that are already running 112 gig interconnect speeds on copper. And I'm told by one startup that they say that they certainly see a, a way forward to doubling that to 224 gigs in the future. And they even have ideas to doubling that to 500 or so gigs. So a lot of room for copper interconnects. The trouble is, uh, the faster they go, the shorter they go. It's just the laws of physics, folks. So the system designers are already starting to look at ways that they can do smaller boards inside the servers and networking gear and then do cable links between them. Uh, it's a little more uh, expensive, but it's a lot less expensive than moving from FR4 to higher uh, board materials or using retimer chips. So faster interconnects are coming, but they're going to force a redesign of board-level products. And that's a pretty interesting and pretty broad impact. This is Rick Merritt reporting from Santa Clara, California for EE Times On Air. CEA Letty is a French research institute that specializes in microelectronics and nanotechnology. The institute hosts an annual conference called Innovation Days. The theme this year was Deep Tech for Edge AI. Where you physically host AI resources in the network makes a difference. Emmanuel Sabonadier is the chief executive of CEA Letty. 
we asked him to explain the two basic approaches for architecting AI in the network. To develop an AI model, you need to have a lot of data and a lot of power of computations. For that, you develop the model in the cloud. After that, you have to use the model for the real life. You can either keep it in the cloud or you can have it more local. That means having edge AI. So what I can see today is that the Chinese or the Americans are more thinking having the model running into the cloud because they have uh, easy access to the data, the real life data, where in Europe, due to the data privacy, you need to have it more local, more personal. And for that, the second school is more the one in Europe where we try to develop chip that will support edge AI uh, as a technology. EE Times editors Nitin Dahad and Junko Yoshida were both at CEA Letty in Grenoble. They filed this report. So uh, Letty was actually, uh, we've been talking about embedded intelligence for a while. Yeah. And I think what Letty was looking to demonstrate is, is the real sort of deep tech behind it for AJI. And, you know, it comes from a lot of, you know, you know Emmanuel, uh, the CEO of Letty said earlier, which was basically... Yeah. Uh, addressing some of the issues around data privacy right. in Europe. That's right. Yeah, he actually made it very clear that unlike China, US model, AI model, Europe, you know, their hands are tied because of the strict regulations of privacy, data privacy. Um, they would have to solve this problem on the edge. You know, it's a hard problem to solve. And um, they think they see their mission, Europe's mission in AI is the edge AI. But, you know, listen, you and I talked about, well, edge AI is almost like a overhyped, over overused in your, you know, in, in, yes. in our coverage. So um, tell me the building blocks of uh, edge AI CEA Letty is talking about here. So, so actually, that's quite important because they're talking really about um, uh, yeah, the non-volatile memory, uh, uh, in-memory computing, spiking neural networks, and uh, you know, the, uh, the processor technology, the FD, FDSOI. Yeah. And I think what they're trying to uh, demonstrate is you can't really have the edge AI without the hardware. And that's actually a very important building block. So without that, won't perform. So that's what... Uh, the research that's going on, and for example, the Spirit chip we saw today, the, the project uh, that uh, Letty has uh, has been working on with the analog uh, synapse, yeah. uh, is is quite an interesting application. Right. Uh, and then we also know we've been lo looking at, uh, for example, the um, stacked memory and processing. You know, the the thing that came out of Stanford that right. we wrote about last year. Yeah. And I think you know just how putting all of that architecture together, together. to basically reduce the data bottleneck. And I think right. that's key. Yeah, I think they talked about not just bottleneck. I think one of the researchers said that don't move data because every time when you move data from memory blocks, external memory blocks to the processor, it uses uh, a lot of energy. So right, so this energy efficiency is one. There's another thing that they talked about: the reduce the number of operations. And that's where I think spiking neural networks, event-driven stuff that comes in, right? So these are the two things. So one of the things that I want to ask you is that what was the most interesting application of uh, edge AI that we heard today? 
So, so um, you know, we've heard a lot about healthcare, yeah. um, but we saw something today which really hit that home, and the sort of application of edge AI, respecting data privacy, and just doing a lot of that processing right at the edge, and then providing a solution. And this was a company that was providing what they called it was first autonomous medical device. And right. what that means is uh, it's, it's a type 1 diabetes um, automated treatment device. Yeah, it's the first autonomous medical device that makes a decision on its own locally. And it's been already approved by reg regulators, both in Germany and France. I was kind of surprised. So, yes, I think um, we heard from them, you know, I think they only started last week and they've already got 30 people using it. I think they still have to go a bit of a way because they need to go through the system to get uh, reimbursed uh, through right. the but medical he system. Said that the CEO of uh, Dialoop, he said that the first reimbursement may happen actually pretty quickly. Correct. Yeah. And they've also started clinical trials on children. Uh, so that's also quite interesting because one of the things I think... Uh, we talk about the technology, but I think one of the things that we don't realize is this enables people with type 1 diabetes, which is quite, quite severe. You know, they have to check uh, their, their measurements and you know, what the food 40 or 50 times a day. Right. Having that automated and autonomous decision making, right. it may, changes their lifestyle totally. Yeah, I think we have already seen several startups um, came up with the wearable uh, devices for the continuous monitoring, right? But this one is different. Tell, tell, tell us that how is it different from just the monitor system? So, yeah. so yes, um, there's a wearable um, cannula, yeah. which basically um, is used for injecting insulin automatically. Yeah. But uh, for that, they have a sensor and that sensor sits really sort of inside the skin. Yeah. Um, and you know, they change this regularly because right. of, for cleanliness. So Every three, three days. Three days, yeah. yeah. And, and then they have a phone. Yeah. It's actually a, a mobile it looks phone. Like a, it is a phone. But, but. <laughs> but they've actually put their own secure OS on it, and they're using secure Bluetooth. Yeah. Uh, and what they said was, you know, the, the standard phones, you know, they don't want to use those, and there's right. the, the other. It's not connected to the internet, right? Correct. Uh, you don't. It, it it would be lethal if somebody hacks into the device like this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, just imagine uh, if somebody wanted to get rid of somebody. You know, right. Yeah, they could just inject over-inject um, uh, uh, over insulin or something like that. Yeah. When I asked what kind of hardware uh, is inside the smartphone look like device and he said it's a mid-range snapdragon type of application processor but he did say that he would like to have more processing power yes i mean one of the challenges in uh, many of the smartphones is there's not enough processing power and this is the whole idea of what Let letty has been doing yeah. you know today in terms of telling us you know about how you can in increase that compute power at the edge right. and i think what he's saying is you know they would like yeah. to have more processing power to right. sort of do a lot more data processing. But yeah. at the moment, what they wanted to do is get something out to market, right. test it, and then get people using it. And then and then maybe in the future, they'll look at some the integration. Impo important thing is that this device does look like a smartphone, but the entire processing power is used for the uh, uh, personalization of machine learning at the edge, right? They're not going to run games or other applications of this. That, that's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. It's totally de the whole um, phone is and computing power is dedicated to running yeah. uh, the the machine learning for that patient. Yeah. So that's uh, the, yeah, that gives them a lot of power, but they still need a lot more. Yeah. 
Right. So I think as Emmanuel, um, the CEO of CEA, Letty said that data privacy is a cornerstone, especially for healthcare devices like this one. The Internet of Things is all about sensors. Rick Merritt and Dylan McGrath attended the Sensors Expo in Silicon Valley this week. This is what they found. Well, it turns out there's a lot of sensors out there, Rick, and there's a lot of sensors that are out there. They're going into everything. I think we're all aware of this, but it's just uh, kind of breathtaking to see the uh, amount of companies on the show floor, the amount of small companies that I've never heard of before, and quite frankly, had a little trouble understanding um, you know, the differences between the things that they're all doing. But I think the the bottom line is pretty clear. I mean, there's there's sen- there's plenty of sensors out there, and there's going to be plenty more. Yeah, I looked at just by. a distributor's list, and there was like 70 companies, of sensor manufacturers that they work with. There's the ones that we know, the big ones, right. you know, uh, the, uh, the handful, ST large and, ones. and Rome and TDK and so forth. But then there's a there's a bazillion tiny companies here. All kinds of tiny companies, and it's it's very. I mean, it's great to see. It's very interesting to see, and. Uh, like I said, I had a little bit of trouble uh, just kind of trying to differentiate between the various technologies. Yeah, because there's so many. I mean, they're right. sensing uh, movement and they're sensing position and they're sensing gas and different Pressure. kinds of gases. They use different technologies yeah. for different markets. So that's you know, it's a hyper-fragmented area. Absolutely. So, so any what stories are, from the show? Well, yeah, I was just going to say. So one of the one of the more interesting things, I, uh, I had a conversation with a gentleman um, from Volar Systems who uh, was talking about using sensors from China. Um, a lot of, obviously a lot of parts and sensors are made in China at low cost. Um, and they were trying to use these sensors in, in one particular application. They were having some trouble. Um, they realized after a couple days of testing and kind of uh, looking under the hood to see what was, what was wrong with their application that these sensors that they had were not operating up to spec. Uh, and he basically said, you know, it's pretty clear to me what's going on. If we hadn't have said anything, we would have continued to receive these sensors that didn't operate up to spec. But because it is so difficult to get the accuracy required from these sensors uh, at the cost that they need to be made at, a lot of the parts aren't yielding correctly. And those, and they find a home for those parts and people that aren't doing all the testing and um, really beating on the thing to make sure it works. So... Test. Kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a test, definitely test. That was his message, and it's a scary thought. How uh, about you? What did you see, Rick? I, I've heard a couple of companies talking about trying to move up the food chain mm-hmm. and like uh, ST Micro and a little bit also at uh, uh, Omron is just getting this started where they're trying to move up from selling sensor components to selling modules and then the software on those modules. Mm-hmm. So, you know, natural, move up the food chain, go where the margin is. Interestingly, uh, a Google uh, manager for their assistant service also gave a talk here and was telling people, boy, come sign up and, and use our APIs on your home sensors because, you know, they're at the very top of the food chain and they just want to suck up all that good uh, good data. So right. we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing everybody move in that direction. Around the world, well over a million people are killed in auto accidents every year. By some estimates, self-driving cars should cut the total number of deaths by 75%. And that's why some people can't wait for self-driving cars to take over the roads. Before that happens, however, cars will be equipped with a variety of features that will help make humans much better drivers. Colin Barnden wrote an article for EE Times in which he posits that driver-assist technology might get so good 
there might be little justification to ever switch entirely to fully self-driving passenger vehicles for the sake of safety. Junko Yoshida recently had this conversation with him. So what prompted you to write this piece? This was the most provocative piece I've read in a long time. Do you know, I was actually on holiday two weeks ago and I was sitting on the sun lounger. And um, sometimes you just have the space when you step away from everything to uh, to see some clarity about life. Yes. You know what it's like, you know, that the world is so busy and there's just so much information mm. and there's, there's so many data points that we're bombarded with daily. And, uh, you know, there I was just sat in the sun and uh, I, I got out my notepad and I just started writing um, the definitions of each of the different uh, autonomy levels. And uh, and that gave me the idea for that piece. As for so-called misconceptions, you raised a couple of points in your piece. One of them is take the human out of the equation in driving. So roads will be a lot safer. This is what you and I hear all the time from the guys in Silicon Valley. But isn't it true that human drivers tend to be unreliable, no? So that's a great question. I mean, essentially what we've got here is uh, a misrepresentation of a NHTSA report. Um, and the NHTSA report states 94% driver error. Um, and really that's been misrepresented as people then saying it's 94% human error. Ah. Um, and really my argument is that, you know, if we take the humans out of the loop and we replace m human drivers with machine drivers, we will still have traffic fatalities, right. um, you know, as indeed we've seen from the accidents with Boeing's MCAS and the, the 737 MAX, you know, automation still makes mistakes. Code still makes mistakes. Machines will still make mistakes, you know, and be that sensor errors or whatever types of errors. Traffic fatalities will still happen. No, that's true. Let's cut to the chase. You wrote, forget level three, level four, level five cars for mass market. Take me through your reasoning from the top. I sense that level five is kind of an intellectual exercise rather than a commercial reality. Please walk me through. So, I mean, you know, let's take something else out of science fiction. You know, do, do, do people believe in teleportation? You know, do they believe in, in time travel? <sighs> um, so, you know, I kind of look at it in terms of, you know, level five, you know, and, and you could call it, you know, um, any time, any place, anywhere, you know, the, the machine driver will handle, you know, all situations, all extremes, all unknowns, all of the times, you know, and to quote um, Phil Koopman, you know, did you think of that? Right. Um, and there would just be so many of those situations in which we find that the world is a complex system um, and automation is just not capable yet to handle that. So level five, it's too far out. It's too difficult um, is my take. You know, level four is too expensive, you know, and, and what I'm seeing from the OEMs is they are agonizing over adding ADAS and driver monitoring system features for, you know, a couple of hundred bucks, you know, and these guys are taking their time and really sweating every cent out of that system. So, you know, $5,000 for unproven technology uh, is not close. And level three, you know, we've got the handover problem. I just want to make one clarification here. You make a distinction between so-called robotaxi and consumer mass market cars, right? Correct. Yeah. So what's happening really with, you know, the the Waymos and the Ubers and the, the Cruises and, and those guys, um, you know, they have a completely different business model. They may very well be able to uh, survive with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of sensors and, and, and neural net processors in a, uh, in a vehicle. 
Um, but the mass market companies, you know, the, the traditional mass market OEMs, you know, they are simply not going to put thousands of dollars. And this technology is unproven. You know, LiDAR is unproven. You know, GPU is unproven in mass market vehicles. And the, and the liability issues, you know, that everybody looks at this from a technical perspective, but, you know, what's the liability? What's the legal issues? What are the political Im uh, implications? Um, and really, when I look at all of that in the round, um, you know, the, the traditional OEMs, they are such conservative companies that they will not go near this. Which level of mass market cars will we have in 2025? Yeah, so, uh, you know, so what I'm looking at really, you know, 90% of cars in use today are level zero. Um, you know, and that's, that's the base position. And that argument doesn't really get made. Um, um, so what's happening now is, um, you know, the, the OEMs, they are introducing uh, level one and level two technologies. Um, so we've got their uh, autonomous, autonomous emergency braking and lane keep assistance. You know, so AEB and LCAS um, are the, the longitudinal and lateral control systems um, that will be used um, along with what I call an infrared vision driver monitoring system to permanently monitor the, the driver's attention state and engagement level. Um, and between those three systems, that's exactly where I see the OEMs uh, adopting, you know, really around levels one, level two, and then you could call this this new thing level two plus, level three minus. Um, that's where I see the volumes. I actually like the way you ended your story saying that, quote, as for the 2030s, I'll get back to you in <laughs> 10 years, unquote. So, you know, it, it's coming. I mean, if we listen to to experts like Missy Cummings, I mean, she talks about the fact that this technology is going to happen. You know, it, it truly is going to happen. And I don't doubt that. Um, you know, but exactly which year it becomes commercially viable and we start to see it, or even which decade, really nobody knows. But as far as I can see for the 2020s, um, we're really looking at, you know, levels one through three minus, um, you know, and, and levels three, four and five are just not realistic for the mass market OEMs. Thanks so much, Colin. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Junko. Nice to talk to you again, too. And this week's bit of tech history. Alexander Graham Bell publicly demonstrated his telephone on June 25, 1876, at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. Thomas Edison was also at the Expo. He showed a machine that increased the speed of producing screws and bolts from 8,000 a day to 100,000 a day. June 23, in 1912, was the birthday of Alan Turing, whose expertise in cryptography contributed to the success of the Allies in World War II. He later proposed the Turing test, an approach to evaluate the performance of artificial intelligences. On this date in 1965, Intelsat-1 was activated for service. The world's first commercial communications satellite, it could support 240 voice channels or one TV channel. It remained in service for three and a half years. Here's President Lyndon Johnson announcing the satellite was open for business. President Johnson inaugurated regular commercial satellite service. This moment uh, marks a milestone in the history of communications between peoples and nations. For the first time, a man-made satellite of Earth is being put into commercial service as a means of communication between continents. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending June 28th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. You can find previous episodes at eetimes.com and at major podcast platforms. 
Be sure to join us next week. I'm Brian Santo, and this is your weekly briefing on EE Times on air.